This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy is putting a new emphasis on helping agencies reduce their procurement administrative lead time. PALT is the time it takes between when an agency issues a contract solicitation and when it actually makes a contract award. And there's good reason to focus on PALT. According to a new analysis by Bloomberg Government, the average lead time increased 72% over the last five years. BGov's Paul Murphy led the data analysis project, and he joins us now to talk more about the rise of PALT. Thanks for joining us, Paul. And and let's start by just talking about some of the, the baseline findings that you came away with after looking at this five years' worth of uh, procurement data. Beyond the headline number of the 72% increase in, in average PALT, what did you find when you looked a little bit below the numbers? Well, we're finding some uh, interesting uh, trends as you break the data down in a little bit more detail. Uh, we're noticing a wide variation in trends from agency to agency. Um, you know, for example, we saw a very low PALT for agencies like uh, DHS, 47 days on average, uh, but it ranged as high as 298 days uh, for USAID. So it shows a, a very clear difference in the kind of the procurement uh, environment, if you will, in, in different agencies. Some other things we saw too were a very clear stair-step pattern uh, in uh, Paul, as, as contracts grew in size, there was a very clear uh, stair-step increase in the um, uh, the lead time it took to handle uh, large contracts. We saw, <clears throat> for instance, that you know the smaller ones under a million took just 54 days, and they're pretty routine. But as you uh, got into the higher, uh, all the way up to over 100 million, this is where we kind of capped it out. And 100 million dollar and up uh, contracts took 308 days from the original solicitation to the uh, initial award of the contract. Yeah, in a lot of ways, that's probably not surprising, right? Because the bigger the contract, the more complex it probably is, the longer it's going to take an agency to evaluate all those bids it solicited. Sure. And, um, you know, we are looking also, you know, at the causes of this. We're trying to help our clients, you know, fence in risk, help them, you know, anticipate, you know, uh, how long it's going to take, you know, from initial bid to award. And, one of the things it helps to understand is, is that particularly, um, you know, in today's environment, you know, with the efficiency initiatives we're seeing with category management, you know, that's pushing uh, vendors to larger and larger contracts. You know, there's staffing lags at the agencies. It's not, uh, the staffing is not keeping up with the growth uh, in the contracts. And also, you know, as these contracts become larger and more important uh, to the companies, uh, protests become a factor and, you know, companies feel compelled to uh, protest if they sense that a decision might uh, you know, not be to their advantage. Yeah, and to that point, since those there are larger contract vehicles now, a lot of things that would have been standalone contracts 10 years ago are probably coming off of IDIQs or BPA calls. Are you able to, are you able to measure PALT off of those kinds of things and able, be able to tell if lead time is growing for something like a, a, a task order for an IDIQ? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, you've correctly perceived there's different categories of, of PALT. And because of the nature of the way the data is reported in the solicitations file, we actually excluded all of the task orders. Because as you can imagine, you know, a schedule contract, for instance, that got awarded five or 10 years ago, and it's on an option period, you know, there were these randomly reported task orders, you know, in the solicitations file that when you calculated them in, it showed, you know, the PALT was, you know, some incredibly high number, like six or seven years. And that's, you know, really, you know, an outlier. And and we realized, you know, once we realized that there were these outliers in the day, we 
created algorithms to exclude them and work with a relatively clean set of data. We were looking at, um, as we described, just the CFO agencies, the 24 CFO agencies, they account for 99% of the dollars uh, that the government spends. Uh, and we just looked at the prime awards uh, because that gave us the uh, cleanest set of results. Yeah, and, and kind of along those lines, OFPP issued some guidance and a new memo earlier this year that both created a common definition for PALT, including, I think, for IDIQs and, and BAAs, and also some some guidance for agencies to, to measure how they're doing. Based on your read of that, is there reason to hope that we might be able to measure some of those things that you couldn't measure this time around if you do this project again five years from now? Oh, we're going to try and keep doing it on a regular basis because the data is incredibly important, you know, for our clients to be able to plan uh, financially. But um, we tried to hew uh, as closely as we could, given the availability and the consistency of the data. We tried to hew as closely as we could to the OFPP's uh, definition, which came out in January, which, you know, followed a year of, I guess, internal discussions at OFPP following you know, the 2018 uh, inclusion of that, that clause in the uh, John McCain uh, NDAA bill in, for 2019. So, you know, it, it's been a long-standing concern, you know, by uh, Congress and the agencies. They recognize um, uh, it's a problem. And so they've begun with this, uh, trying to uh, create a consistent definition of PALT in order to be able themselves to manage it. And so the public, um, you know, companies like ours, you know, we, we have access to certain information, you know, in SAM.gov and, and, and the solicitations database. And so we can work with, you know, a significant part. Of I think ultimately our analysis covered about 400,000 records and um, a very tiny, I mean, well less than 1% wound up including um, schedules and BAAs really didn't make statistically uh, any difference in the results we came up with, but we left a very small number of them in because we thought that there might be some rare exceptions where, you know, these were uh, consistently reported uh, solicitations, you know, along with uh, all the others that we measured. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, that that stair stepping that you talked about the the correlation between contract size and length of pulp, there's there's some logic to that. But but I got to say, I was kind of surprised that even in the small category for contracts worth less than a million dollars, the average was still something on the order of almost two months for for pulp. I mean, that's probably still nowhere near what the commercial equivalent would be in, in commercial industry for a contract of that size. When you break down by size, can you can you see progress? In any particular category, is PALT actually decreasing anywhere that you could that you can see in the data? Well, you know, the, relating back to your, your previous question, I, I think you would probably see a generally lower PALT with the task order solicitations. Again, we don't have access to when the task order solicitations came out. We we do know when the awards came up, but because we determined that they didn't necessarily correspond to the uh, solicitation dates of the original contract, which is what we are uh, intending to measure. Um, I think you would actually see uh, lower pulse, you know, with the task order. You already have, you know, a pre-selected group of contractors. Uh, you have, you know, expedited uh, solicitation terms. You know, you know, schedule you know, requests for quotes and task order solicitations. You know, they can have three, five, ten-day turnaround times for millions of dollars in awards. So I think that's where you would, you know, see uh, a lower pulse uh, most likely. Uh, but until we get exposure of this level of data, you know, by the agencies. You know, we're left to looking at the prime awards. And that's important, too, for agencies uh, and, and companies to understand is that when companies first see these contracts that they're uh, potentially bidding for, you know, they're looking for, you know, how much you know, time am I going to have to carry employees? You know, when am I going to have to start arranging financing? I mean, when are we going to have to start arranging 
uh, hiring and startup costs, you know, if I'm bidding on a contract of a certain size. So the prime award, you know, the fundamental vehicle awards that we are able to measure with this, you know, has a, a lot of significance for companies. But once you get into, you know, the actual you know, meat and potatoes of, of task order uh, bidding and and responses, uh, I think you would actually see faster turnaround times. And this is probably a difficult question to answer, Paul, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It just just based on the data that you looked at, is there anything that you can see that might point toward causes for this increase in Paul? Well, uh, as I mentioned, um, I think you know, the budget log jams, the, the, I think a lot of this you know, can be laid at the feet of Congress. Uh, there's a CRS uh, report that came out um, a few years ago indicating that, you know, since 1977, there have been only three years that Congress has not had a continuing uh, resolution. And so when you have continuing resolutions, it narrows the window that agencies have to bid. It could push you know, that window you know, uh, into the next year as far as two or three months. And you know, given the PALT that we're seeing, you know, the, the various you know, sizes of, uh, of contracts you know, take, you know, can take two or 300 days, you know, then they start working, the agencies start working backwards and they say, well, if it's going to take us, you know, two or 300 days, you know, work back from September uh, to, you know, June and even May. And that's your window, you know, from November to May. And so Paul makes the agencies a lot more cautious, you know, that they, they don't want to you know, have to uh, issue an RFP and then, you know, wind up, you know, for whatever reason, having delays or protests, pushing it in, you know, past September 30th when, you know, they lose their authorizations and they're not sure if they're going to have, you know, the money reauthorized until they get the new budget. So it affects, you know, behavior there. It it, it causes, you know, consternation with the um, uh, the bidders, you know, because it, it increases their costs and uncertainty and risk. So, um, you know, there's the, the CRs, I think, are a critical uh, aspect of this. But you also have, you know, this we, we've shown our data in the last uh, several months. We've been doing some research following particularly multiple award contracts and trends in best in class contracts. And there is a definite trend toward an increasing amount of money being spent on larger multiple award contracts. Overall, it, the data supports that you know, larger and fewer contracts are going to larger and fewer companies. And there's been a consolidation in the federal marketplace. So as these contracts grow in size, the pulse increases. As you know, we discussed, it's, it's, it's kind of a natural progression. And then you know, there's the bid protest, as uh, we've discussed. I mean, some some of these you know bid protest protests can drag on for months. You know, the Encore Three protest you know dragged on for took over a thousand days to award, and I you know this is very hard for uh, agencies as well as as companies to respond to. And, and then there's you know the sluggishness, the hiring sluggishness, the um, the fact that you know 1101s and 1102s, you know the contract officers and the contract uh, administrators, their employment has not been uh, growing in the same rate as contracts have been increasing. So their portfolios are becoming uh, larger and uh, a little bit more complex. And something we want to look at going down the road is, you know, the average age of a contract officer comes into play here. You know, less experienced contract officers may have more difficulty handling uh, complex procurements. And so we want to take a look at that and see if Maybe there's some staffing and training issues that need to be addressed as well on the government side. Paul Murphy is a senior data analyst with Bloomberg Government. We'll post a link to his new work on PALT at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. 
During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, 
what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening, 
to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com.